What's wrong with the world? That's a question that a lot of people are asking. And there are a lot of answers being given. What's wrong is the economy. What's wrong is the education system. Uh, It's the government. It's welfare. It's corporate privilege. It's declining morality. It's fundamentalist religion. On and on and on. Now, every group has their answer for what's wrong with the world. But think about some of those answers just for a bit. It's not hard to see that they're not as comprehensive as they claim to be. Right? Somebody who says the problem is the education system. Well, do you really mean kind of the education system of the whole world? Or are you just talking about kind of inner city urban America? So let's really ask the question, what's wrong with the world? Not just America, but the whole world. From America to Algeria, from Ecuador to Eritrea, from Macau to Micronesia, every tribe, tongue, and nation. What's wrong with the world? And among all those people, don't limit yourself to just kind of one slice of society, right? We, we do that. We ask, what's wrong with the world? And we're thinking of a particular kind of people. But, but think about the whole picture from, from the dysfunctional teenager living in the inner city to the aborigines of the outback, from the high-powered executive to the witch doctors of the jungle, from the patient dying in the cancer ward to the child being born. What's wrong with the world? And don't limit yourself just to 2013. Can you ask this question in a way that includes all of human history? From the beginning of time, throughout the Babylonian dynasties, the the Greco-Roman Empire, the the Ming dynasties of China, through the Dark Ages to the modern age, and all the way to the end of human history as we know it. What's wrong with the world? And most importantly, when you ask what's wrong with the world, make sure you don't leave out the one person that you're most prone to leave out, yourself. So, what's wrong with the world? You know, we're starting a a five-part series this morning through the book of Romans. John Knox, the theologian, once wrote that Romans is unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. For good reason, he wrote that. Here in Romans, Paul gives us a step-by-step exposition of the glory of God revealed in the salvation of his people through the gospel. You know, what we find here is not just some, some narrow sectarian concern of some ancient religious writer. No, this is God's inspired revelation addressing the biggest questions of life and giving us profound insight into the meaning of our existence. That's what I'm praying we're going to encounter during our time in this book. The big picture of this world and the meaning of our lives. Well, we're going to start today and we're going to begin just in Romans chapter 1. And let's, let's set up the context of this letter first. Look with me here in Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David's, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith has been reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of His Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul's letter to the Romans was written sometime around 57 A.D., and like so many of his letters, he, he opens with this introduction, making clear who he is and why he's writing. He's an apostle. He's been given authority by God to preach and to lead the churches. But he's also a servant. Literally, he's a slave of Jesus Christ. He is not his own. He belongs to another. And, and his, miss, his mission and his message is not about himself, but it's about his Lord Jesus Christ. How did this church in Rome get started? Well, we're not sure. Some scholars think that it's possible that this church got started after Pentecost, when Jews from Rome returned home from Jerusalem. But it's clear from this letter that this church did not stay kind of only Jewish, but eventually Gentile converts were brought into the church. And by the time this letter is written, it seems that Gentiles have become the majority of the church, resulting in real tension between Jews and Gentiles here. So Paul is going to Rome, and he's going to Rome to make it clear uh, to, 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 to minister among them. He's been praying for a long time that God would open uh, the way for him to see them, that he might be able to encourage them and strengthen them, uh, and that they might do the same for him. We know from the end of the letter that Paul has this vision of going beyond Rome, and take the gospel even as far as Spain, and maybe using the churches in Rome as sort of a, a base of operations. But before he can do that, he wants to make sure that they are understanding the same gospel, and that they've experienced his ministry 
among them. And so we see here in verse 15 that Paul is eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. And he begins right here in this letter by unpacking the gospel step by step. Notice something here. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to Christians. Right? The, the gospel is not only for unbelievers. It's not only for baby Christians. It's not something that we just sort of tack on at the end of sermons. No, the gospel is what Christians need to hear throughout their lives. They need to hear it re-explained and reapplied. They need to keep it at the forefront of their minds. The gospel is what fuels the Christian life. And so whether you're a brand new Christian or you've been a Christian for decades, there should be an eagerness to talk to one another about this gospel. That's what we see here in Paul's life. What is this gospel? Well, we see the summary there in verses 16 and 17. And really, this is the thesis for the whole letter. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What is the gospel? Well, it's this message of God's power for salvation from sin and judgment. It's It's a salvation that is available to all people, Jew and Gentile. It's a message that provides a righteousness that comes from God, not in judgment, but as a gift given to sinful people in exchange for their guilt. And it's a message to be received by faith, by believing in Jesus Christ from first to last, from beginning to end, by faith. As we saw in the opening verses, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God promised by his prophets through the Old Testament. He is the Son of God who became man, who walked among us. He lived our life. He experienced our trials. And he perfectly obeyed his Heavenly Father. In his life, he was the embodiment of the righteousness of God. And yet, this, this one righteous man was nailed to a cross. As we've been singing, he was forsaken by God. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God against sin. Not his own sins, but the sins of God's people. And as he died, it would seem that sin had triumphed. But it didn't. No, God raised him from the dead, declaring with power that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who triumphed over sin and death. And now for all those who will repent of their sin and will place their trust in Jesus, they will be forgiven. They will be saved. They'll receive a righteousness that is not their own, but comes from God for their salvation. Friends, this is the gospel. Whether you've grown up in church or whether this is your first time here, if you walk away this morning with your hope in anything other than this message, then you have missed the most important thing in the world. 
you have failed to understand, understand the central fact and hope of human history. This is what God is all about. And this is what your life is to be about. If you haven't placed your trust in Jesus Christ, God is calling you to do that even today, even this morning. Even today, you can turn away from your sins and trust in Christ and know the salvation that Paul is talking about here. But I fear for many of us, these words don't mean really all that much, right? Salvation from what? Forgiveness of what? This is where we have to go down before we can go up. You know, this, this past May, I got to go to the, the Shanghai World Financial Center uh, in China, the, the third tallest building in the world. I got to go to the top. You know, in order for them to build this amazing building, they first had to dig down deep. They had to drive these, these thousands of pylons into the, into the ground, almost 25 stories down. You know, the higher you want to go up, the deeper you first need to go down. And before we can see the heights of the glory of the gospel, we have to see the depths of our sin, of our problem. J.C. Ryle writes in the opening of his book, Holiness, the plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. Without it, such doctrines as Justification, conversion, sanctification are words and names which convey no meaning to the mind. The first thing, therefore, that God does when he makes anyone a new creature in Christ is to send light into his heart and show him that he is a guilty sinner. And this is where Paul begins as he unpacks the gospel. For the rest of, the two, of, the, of, of these two chapters, I have two very simple points I want to make. First, that the world is in trouble. The world is in trouble. And second, so are we. So are we. And I pray that God will do what Ryle describes, that, that he will send light into our hearts and show us that we are guilty sinners. But then having gone down into those depths, that his light would then reveal to us the gospel and that we would be raised up in joy. So first, the world is in trouble. Let me read here in Romans 1, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Well, right off the bat, we see that the fundamental problem that all mankind faces is the wrath of God against sinful man. All our sin, from the greatest to the smallest, is in direct opposition to the holiness and righteousness of God. And His righteous response to sin is a holy wrath. This isn't just a kind of impersonal, mechanical response. No, this is the active, righteous, personal fury of a holy God against sin. And this is the wrath that the unbelieving world is under. The Jews of Paul's days would have understood this to be the Gentile world. Right away, we see here the big difference in the way Christianity talks about evil and this world talks about evil. You know, people have no problems recognizing the evil of crime, of greed, of abuse, because it's easy to see the way that those evils hurt people. And and that's a real thing. But that's not the ultimate thing. No, according to this, the ultimate problem of the world is not the way sin hurts people, but it's the way our sin offends God and incurs His wrath. Why is the, the world in trouble? Why is God's wrath being revealed? We see three reasons here in this passage. First, the world is in trouble because they suppress the truth. Because they suppress the truth. That's what we see there in verses 18 through 20. You know, in order for sin to work, there has to be a suppression of the truth. 
the reason people sin is not because they don't know better. Rather, people sin because they have chosen to ignore, to suppress what creation is revealing to them about God. We live in the universe that God has created. And throughout the universe, from the smallest delicate flower to the raging, boiling hot sun, God is communicating to us His invisible qualities. There is not a blade of grass, there is not a color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice in our knowledge of God. How does the psalmist put it? The the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. It's like we've, we've awakened in this magnificent art gallery. right? And even though we've never seen the artist, in these 10,000 paintings all around us, given for our enjoyment, we learn what he's like. I had an experience sort of like that this past week. I was walking home from work, walking past the farmer's market that meets you know, there in our parking lot on Thursdays. And, you know, it was a gorgeous afternoon, clear sky, warm sun, cool breeze, music in the air, fresh fruits and vegetables, flowers, children playing, laughter, conversation. And I was just struck by this scene, right? This painting, as it were. Where did this come from? Where did this richness and life and beauty come from? What kind of artist is this? What kind of power must he possess? How good and generous must he be? And how must I owe him all that I am? That's just one small painting. This this art gallery extends mile after mile to the ends of the universe. And all of it communicates to us the greatness and holiness of God. As sophisticated as our questions and doubts might be, the reason we have such a hard time seeing God in creation is not because of a shortage of evidence. The problem is not with creation. No, the problem is with people because of our fallen sinfulness. Did you notice that the suppression of truth happens by their wickedness. In other words, it's not as if people are sort of these morally neutral, objective seekers trying to find God. No, we are all biased. We all love sin. It's wired into our very being. And and because people love sin, they want to justify that love by denying, by suppressing the reality of God. Why is God full of wrath towards sinners? Well, because every sin exists in the face of overwhelming evidence of God's eternal power and divine nature. And every sin, therefore, is a denial of who God is. Second, God is wrathful towards this world because of their idolatry. Because of their idolatry. That's what we see there in verses 21 through 23. 
the result of the suppression of truth is this terrible decline into futility, into darkness. Apart from a right understanding of God, there can be no right thinking, no right feeling, no right being. And it all culminates in this horrible exchange of the glory of God for man-made images. In other words, idolatry. You know, we hear this word idolatry, and we, we think of primitive people, you know, bowing down to carved images. You know, as Westerners, we, we have a hard time identifying with, with that. But at its root, idolatry is this exchange of, truth, of the truth of God for a lie, of worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. So it doesn't have to involve carved images. No, idolatry exists any time we substitute created things in the place that should only be occupied by our Creator. It's when we seek fulfillment and purpose in created things rather than our Creator. It's when we find our delight, our satisfaction in earthly things rather than in God. It's when we devote our time, our attention, our ambitions towards worldly things rather than our maker. In other words, it is this tragic exchange of the glory of the immortal God for the dust of this world. And this idolatry characterizes the world. You know, we were all made to worship something. And if we're going to turn away from God, we're going to look for our gods elsewhere. So what are the idols of our culture? What are the idols of your life and my life? Well, how much time do you have? I mean, Paul lists some idols there in verse 23. But really what he's communicating is the the sort of wide range of idolatry. From from mortal man all the way down to reptiles. In, In other words, we're pretty undiscerning in our idolatry. You know, we're not very picky about what we turn into idols. We can turn any created thing into an idol. From really good things that God has given us, like like work and relationships, serving other people, all the way down to really low and debased things. Pornography, drugs, violence. As John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. And in every single one of those idols, people have given created things the place that only God deserves in their lives. With their lives, with their affections, with their choices, people are declaring that they prefer the stuff of this world more than God. And that is why this world is under God's wrath. And finally, number three, this world is in trouble because they love sin. Because they love sin. This is what they approve of. This is what they love. That's what we see there in verses 26 on to the end. This is what God's wrath is revealing about humanity. Notice what he's saying here. How is God punishing this suppression of truth and idolatry. Well, he's doing a terrifying thing. 
He's not sending fire from heaven. He's not sending a, a devastating flood. No, He's giving sinners what they want. He gives sinners over to their sin. When Paul talks about God's wrath being revealed, he's not referring to a judgment that is coming, though there is one. No, he's, he's actually talking about the present. The world is experiencing the wrath of God for their sins. And this wrath is a terrifying thing because God is giving sinners over to the destructive sins that they want and that they love. You know, this language of God giving people over is what we see in the Old Testament with Israel. Whenever Israel would worship the idols of surrounding nations, God's judgment meant that he would give them over to what they wanted. Uh, He would allow them to be enslaved and oppressed by those foreign gods and powers they so loved. That's what's going on here. God is handing humanity over to the captivity that they have chosen for themselves. Namely, sin. And sin is the cruelest of masters. But in giving people over to sin, it's not as if God is imposing some kind of external evil on us. Rather, this is the removal of God's gracious restraint over humanity in order to reveal what actually resides in our hearts. And as He does so, what we find is this unending hatred for God, this unquenchable love for sin, resulting in all kinds of destruction, sorrow, and further incurring the wrath of God. You know, some of the most controversial statements here are Paul's words about homosexuality there in verses 26 and 27. This is a difficult topic in our day. And with just a few minutes to address this, there's so much potential for misunderstanding. As we've announced, we're going to have these Wednesday night series that are going to be exploring this topic of what the Bible has to say about sexuality more at length. I particularly just want to invite all of you who are thinking about these things, who are wrestling with these things, to come out to these meetings. But I do want to take some time just to think about what Paul is saying here. So let me just make three points. First of all, we see that that homosexuality is against God's natural design. Some people have interpreted the condemnation here as being against those who would practice homosexuality against their natural heterosexual uh, orientation. But but in the wider context of creation and, and, and what Paul is talking about here, when Paul talks about natural and unnatural, He's not referring to someone's subjective sense of their own sexuality. No, he's referring to God's purpose for us and for his created order. So when someone says, but God made me this way, that's actually not correct. Yes, there is a sense in which this orientation might reside deep in your being, just like so many of our other sinful tendencies reside deep in our being. But that's a result of the corruption of our bodies because of sin. God made people in His image, male and female, and and that is His good design. 
homosexuality is against that natural design of God. Second, what we see here is that idolatry is the root problem of our lives, not homosexuality or any other sin. The deepest problem of our lives, whether we're heterosexual or homosexual, is that we have exchanged God for idols. Our failure to worship God is our deepest disorder beneath all of the brokenness of this world. And therefore, what we need first and foremost is not to repair our disordered sexuality, but to return to our right worship of God. And then third, and and this is tremendously weighty, the reason Paul highlights homosexuality is because of the way it uniquely displays our idolatry. Now, throughout Scripture, man and woman in covenant sexual union is meant to be a picture of the covenant relationship between man and God. You know, in, embedded in creation, in, in this joyful and fundamental aspect of who we are, in marriage between man and woman, we have two who are different brought together in perfect unity. That's a glimpse of the kind of relationship humanity was meant to have with God. God is the one who is wholly different from us, wholly other than us. And yet that God invites us into covenant relationship with Him. But in our idolatry, we have turned away from God to ourselves. And now God will hand us over to what we have chosen. Rather than our sexuality being a picture of our relationship with God, it will be a picture of our idolatry. As male and female turn to images of themselves for sexual union, namely their own sex. What we see in the sexual revolution of our day and of all of human history is the judgment of God showing us how we have exchanged the glory of God for images of ourselves. God's wrath is being revealed against human sinfulness. And that means our sexuality and our very being is now disordered and is now a picture of what we have earned by our idolatry. There's so much more we could say. But again, let me encourage you to come out on upcoming Wednesday nights and we're going to hear a fuller treatment of what the Bible has to say about this topic. But then we're also going to hear about what it looks like for us to redemptively love those who are struggling with this and even how to respond to it ourselves when we find ourselves struggling with this. Well, from the catalog of sin there in verses 29 to 31, you know, it's really clear that God's handing people over to sin is not limited just to our sexual brokenness. No, it pervades every area of our lives, relationships, words, our thinking, our hearts, our actions. No, this isn't the description of any one person. This is what characterizes fallen human society. And so nobody can escape this, right? Looking at this list, you might think, wait, wait a minute, I'm not a murderer. I'm not ruthless. Well, yes, but perhaps that's true, but have you ever lied? Have you ever gossiped? Have you ever disobeyed your parents? You know, these are real evils, and they incur the wrath of God. 
No, it's striking the way Paul lists all these sins next to each other. Murderers are right there alongside the slanderers. The God-haters are right there next to the parent-haters. The inventors of evil are right there with the envious. People want to create categories of sin. You know, the Catholic Church creates the categories of like mortal and venial sins. You know, we, we like to think, okay, stay away from the mortal sins, right? Don't murder. Don't kidnap anybody. Don't commit genocide. And you're okay. And if you commit venial sins, well, they're bad, but they're small. God will kind of deal with them separately. That's not what we see here. From big sins to small sins, verse 32, those who do such things deserve death. How terrible will God's wrath be against this world? It will be what such a world utterly given over to the suppression of truth, to idolatry, and to wickedness deserves. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I wonder if this sounds like a description of the world you live in. And more importantly, I wonder if this sounds like a description of your life. If your answer is no, well then the question is, has God misunderstood you and this world? Or have you misunderstood God? Could it be that you are living under this terrible conspiracy to suppress the truth? What I want all of us to take away from this text is not a to-do list. It's not an action plan. Not quite yet. What we need to take away from this is perhaps for the first time the awful realization that we belong to a world. We are part of a world that has gone horribly wrong and that has defiantly turned her back on her Creator and now is under the just and righteous condemnation of her God. The world is in serious trouble. And so are we. So are we. Look in chapter 2. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what He has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, 
But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment and knowledge of truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as those who, as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. You know, in, in chapter 1, Paul gives us a picture of the unbelieving world, which would have been the Gentile world of his day. And you can imagine the, the murmurs of approval uh, and agreement coming from his Jewish listeners. You know, he's almost sort of riling them up as he's giving that long list of sins there at the end of, the chap- of chapter 1. But then he turns and he points the finger at them. In whatever way these Jewish listeners were passing condemnation on to others, they were actually condemning themselves. And so this is how we have to hear this. This chapter is for any of us who were listening to the previous section and for whatever reason thinking that that did not apply to us. Because what, you know, whether it's because of your morality or your upbringing or your church attendance, or whatever, if you did not feel the reality of your guilt before God and the wrath that that sin exposes you to, then this chapter is addressed to you. Because we also are in trouble. And Paul, again, gives us three reasons why that's the case. First, because God will not show favoritism. God will not show favoritism. That's what we see there at the end of verse 11. When judgment day comes, there will be no partiality. Why is it that we think that God plays favorites? And why is it that we so easily think that we are among those favorites? Right? That that is not the case. God is a righteous judge. His judgment is going to be according to truth. And so all the strictness and precision of justice that he's going to exact over the life of a Hitler is the same strictness 
and precision that He will exact over your life and my life. Yes, He is a God that is rich in patience and kindness. The fact that we are alive and breathing today is ample evidence of that. But when Judgment Day comes, when it comes time for us to stand before the bar of heaven, there will be no favors given. There will be no bribes accepted. No, on that day, God's standard of justice will be crystal clear. And those who do not meet that standard will be sent away to trouble and distress. Well, how do we know we're thinking this way? Well, according to verses 1 and 3, if you find yourself being judgmental towards others, you're probably thinking that God favors you kind of specially. Um, that's why judging people is wrong. It's not wrong because morality is relevant, uh, relative and there's no such thing as good and evil. No, no good and evil are, are very much objective realities. And it's right to recognize evil around you. But the sin of judgmentalism is when we pass condemnation onto others, thinking that we ourselves are not under that same condemnation. It's condemning people for the wrong they've done without recognizing that we ourselves are also condemned for probably that same wrong. We all have done this. We, we, we give ourselves a break for our own sin and we refuse to give to others for their sin. So if you find yourselves being judgmental, the answer is not to relativize sin. The solution is to stop belittling God's justice. Begin seeing your sin for what it is. Take the plank out of your own eye and then in fear and trembling, humbly offer yourselves in love to help others deal with their sin. Pray that God will help you do that. Second, the world we are in trouble because God will judge according to obedience. God will judge according to obedience. That's what we see there in, in verse 5. What, what will be the standard of God's judgment? God will give to each person according to what he has done. Those who persist in doing good will be rewarded with eternal life. And more specifically, this good that we're to do is obedience to God's law. That's what we see there starting in verse 12. God's law is that moral standard that is the reflection of his character. As as those created in God's image, we were made to reflect who God is by our lives, by our work, by our relationships. And the way we do that is by living according to that standard, that law that God has given us. First in our consciences, but more clearly in His Word. That's how we're going to be judged. We're going to be judged according to our obedience to God's law. You know, as, as much as the Jewish people agreed with this for the unbelieving world, they had failed to apply it to themselves. Rather than seeing the law as something that they had to obey and to live according to, they just saw it as a token of God's favor. If God had given them his word, they must be a special people. Uh, they placed their confidence in just having the law instead of obeying it. Friends, it's easy for us to shake our heads at this, but is this not what our sinful nature does? You know, as evangelicals who put a high priority on the word of God, we really have to be careful of this. You know, we, we sit under preaching week after week, We attend Bible studies. We hear Bible teaching on the radio, on our podcasts. We wear t-shirts with Bible verses on them. All that is fine and good. But that's not the ultimate issue. 
when judgment day comes, the question will be, have you obeyed what God has commanded so clearly in His Word? Are you turning away from sin? Are you living in obedience to Him? We might waver in answering those questions, but God will not waver when it comes time for Him to to declare what is the case. No, it's going to be crystal clear whose lives have brought Him honor and whose lives have blasphemed His name. And then third, we are in trouble because outward religion is not enough. Because outward religion is not enough. The Jews here were trusting in their circumcision and these signs of belonging to God. You know, one of the easiest and deadliest substitutes for true obedience to God's law is just an outward conformity to a religious standard. It's, it's easy because it doesn't require us to deal with our sin. All we've got to do is walk an aisle, say a prayer, and we're done. We can go back to our sin. But it's deadly because it cannot make us right with God. God will judge us, not according to outward conformity, but according to our obedience. If any of you here was somehow feeling that you, that the first chapter did not apply to you, then what you need to realize is that all the condemnation that you would gladly heap on the world out there, all that same condemnation applies to you for your own sins. Your imaginary favor before God does not save you. Your knowing about God's word does not save you. And your outward religion does not save you. The whole world is under the wrath of God. And so are we. And this is where the gospel begins. By exposing our desperate need before God. If you don't begin here, you don't have a gospel. All of humanity, Jew and Gentile, moral and immoral, religious and irreligious, all of humanity stands utterly condemned before God because of our sin. Every human division of race, of culture, of language, of wealth, of class, every division is obliterated by this one massive commonality. We are sinners, all of us. And we need to be saved by God. And that's where the gospel comes in. Friends, the gospel is for sinners. The church is for sinners. What we have here is not a gathering of those who have got their lives together. No, what we have here is the one place on earth specifically designed for sinners of every kind, of every background, of every record, to be brutally honest about their sinfulness and yet be safe, be accepted, because that's what the gospel is for. Mike Nichols, the the Jewish film director, tells the story about fleeing Nazi Germany as a child and going to New York City. When he arrives in New York City, he's surprised by by the proliferating Jewish businesses kind of everywhere. And he's surprised to see the sign on, for a deli written in Hebrew, like right out in public. And he remembers asking his dad, is that allowed here? I pray that Henson Baptist Church would be a place where sinners come 
And as they hear testimonies, as they hear conversations, as they see pastors and members humbly confessing their weaknesses and messy people owning their failures, that sinners coming in here would ask, people can do that? We're allowed to to confess that here? And that they would find out that it really is okay. That such openness and honesty about our brokenness really is allowed because we have the gospel. I pray that Henson would have that kind of culture of grace where sinners would confess their sin and talk about their sin and repent into the safety of the gospel. And so we return to the theme of this letter. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Maybe you've been suppressing the truth about God all your life. Your sin, you've been hiding it, And for the first time, you're seeing the awful truth that God is real and that your sin deserves His judgment. If this is you, come talk to me at the door. Call me in the church office this week. Call call your Christian friend. Tell them that you want to set up a time to, to, to look at the Bible and to see what this gospel really is all about. Maybe you're more like the people there in chapter 2. You've been in church all your life. You've walked on the aisle. You've said the prayer. You've been baptized. And you shake your head at how evil all the people are out there. But this morning you're starting to realize that you don't have it all together. That your life will not hold up before the judgment seat of God. If that's you, then then call on God. Repent of your pride, of your self-sufficiency, and turn to Jesus. And don't go at this alone talk to one of the elders here, talk to a Christian friend, confess your sin and make it your ambition to live a new life of faith. And for all of you who have put your faith in Christ, who like Paul are unashamed of the gospel, be in awe of what God has saved you from. Let's stop being bored with the gospel. Let's Let's stop treating it as a secondary matter. Rather, let's spend ourselves telling a lost world about all that God has done for us and all that He has done for them through Jesus Christ. It's time for all of us to stop suppressing the truth. God is real. Our sins are terrible. And His awful wrath has come and is coming. But, as a Puritan once said, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that even now we don't yet grasp the depths our sin and so your grace seems small Father send your light into our hearts 
Help us to see who we really are. But then please don't leave us there. Please help us then to see how, how much greater your mercy is towards us in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.